to the Dean at Stumps podcast, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket show with expert analysis by Dean Duplessis. He made his test debut against South Africa in 1999 and ironically ended his test debut against the same opposition in 2008. He captained England from 2003 to 2008 and was best remembered for the series win in the Ashes of 2005 when England won the Ashes by two test matches to one. Hello there, Vaughny. How are you doing? Yeah, now then, Dean, how are you? <laughs> uh, I, I, I presume you're in lockdown as well, are you, like us over here in the UK? Absolutely, absolutely, we are indeed. And how are you keeping sane? What are you doing to make sure that everything is still good with you? Uh, it, well, we're lucky. We're, we're up north and, um, well, we, we've got very few people around us, so we're in the middle of the countryside. So I, I've actually, for the first time in my life, started to show an interest in gardening because, you know, I want to be outside when the sun's shining. It's shining today. Uh, so I think I've mowed the lawn for the first time in 30-odd years this last couple of weeks, two or three times. Uh, done a bit of weeding. Obviously, fitness, uh, I think it's important to stay active. So I have a, a bike here that I can use, do a little bit of uh, the online classes that everyone seems to be doing, trying to keep the kids active, trying to keep the minds occupied. Uh, all the kids are cooking. I've got a pizza oven. I do the pizza ovens outside. They mm. do the, the cooking inside. So I think it, it, it's tough, but you've, you've got to be positive in these times. I'm looking at it purely as, as a, a cricket in perspective that, you know, we're away from home so long. This is a time that we're actually being told that we have to be at home. So we have to make the most of that precious time with the family. Right. Well, that very informal introduction was, of course, the cue to tell you that you're listening to former England captain and very successful one at that, Michael Vaughan, who has made an appearance on Dean at Stumps. And I guess now more formally, Michael, thank you for taking time out. I know that you're not doing a great deal, but even so. Um, yeah, we have a pizza oven as well, by the way, a homemade built-in pizza oven. We need to exchange recipes. I'll send you a Zimbabwean pizza, which is very meat-orientated, and you can send me one of your Yorkshire pizzas. Yeah, well, I, I, I do everything. I mean, I obviously do it the odd pizza, but I, I do everything other than pizzas on my pizza oven. I, I like um, doing the, the full roast dinner. So do we. Um, <laughs> I, I love doing a full English breakfast. You put the bacon and the... The sausages on a grill above a, a big tray and you let all the fats drip in and you put your tomatoes, your black puddings, your mushrooms underneath. You let it all drip down and right at the last minute you bake your eggs in amongst everything. And there's your full English bake. Uh, I, I love doing that. I did Yorkshire puddings. I actually made Yorkshire puddings for the first time ever on uh, Sunday and I did it in the pizza oven and uh, they weren't too bad. So uh, we'll be back doing that again next week. So I, I'm trying to educate myself into things that uh, certainly I wouldn't have been doing if I've been 
over in India commentating on the IPL or <laughs> working on a couple of my businesses, you know, in Manchester. I, I certainly wouldn't have had this opportunity. So I'm taking it as a positive. And so we should, absolutely. Do you enjoy the whole IPL commentating? I mean, we all know that test cricket is the best cricket, but do you like getting out there and getting involved with the IPL? And, and I mean, the glitz and glamour must be, must be something quite amazing to observe. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, I, I think there's a lot of cynics out there that point at the IPL and, uh, and I guess I don't know whether it's jealousy or the fact that they're traditionalists in the longer format. They don't want the IPL to be a success. But, you know, I, I love it and, and I love all cricket. It's not that I don't think Test Match cricket is the best. It is it still is the one game that, you know, holds uh, the, the deepest kind of weight in my heart. It's still the one game that I remember most test matches. I very rarely remember T20 games or 50-over games, apart from obviously a World Cup final last year. They kind of all roll into one. But, you know, what the IPL brings is razzmatazz and, and exposure to a global audience that necessarily cricket always doesn't get. And, and I think the economies of what the IPL brings, obviously it's strong for India, but the global economy for what it brings to players, the exposure of the game globally, I think it's huge. Behind the World Cups, I think obviously the IPL is is the second biggest and most important aspect of our game at this stage because of the economies that it brings. And that's why it needs to be fitted in this year somewhere in this calendar with the COVID-19 situation. And obviously the IPL not taking place now. It does need to be fit in somewhere in the calendar because of those economies. And also the players love it. The players love playing in those teams. They get to know each other. Obviously the exposure to play in front of big crowds, the atmosphere is over there. I think international teams are realising that you know, it's a good schooling for the international game because you are under a huge amount of pressure as an overseas pro playing in the IPL because you're on a, a huge amount of money playing in front of big crowds. And if you have a couple of bad games, you're out, you, you drop, no matter who you are, they drop you. And I think the international teams have realised now that it's a real good schooling for international cricket because that's what it's like at the international game. Two or three bad performances, the media, the pressure inside your own mind starts to build up. So... You know, for that reason, I think the IPL is uh, a great schooling for the international game. Would you say that, I mean, obviously there's no doubt that people such as Andrew Strauss and a lot of people behind the scenes had a very big part to play in ensuring that England won the World Cup last year. But surely the IPL would have gone a long way and, and allowing finally allowing England players to partake in the IPL. That probably would have done a great deal of England players the world of good as well, wouldn't you think? Yeah, yeah, they did. I mean, there's a few that had been over there, but, you know, I think sometimes you can look for, there's many good things that happened in English cricket over the last four years to make them win the World Cup. A lot of individuals and personalities played a big part. Uh, obviously, you mentioned Andrew Strauss. He kind of changed the central contracts and uh, the thinking behind one day cricket to make sure that it became unequal for at least those four years leading into our own World Cup with Test Match cricket. There was many disagreed with that but it worked it won the World Cup but it's the players it's the players that win your trophies you know I think sometimes too many people can get too much praise and it's the players you can only win major tournaments with players you know I, I always get praise for my captaincy but you know I can't be the captain without the players you know you can't be a, a good captain without having four quality bowlers Owen Morgan couldn't win that World Cup last year without you know Joffrey Archer getting his qualification hurried through for the World Cup, you know, with Joss Butler in your team, Ben Stokes in your side, 
you know, Morgan led the team brilliantly in over four years. He guided that team under the pressure to play this expansive game of cricket. But it's players, you know, it's the 11 players and the 15 in the squad, backed up by good management, you know, getting the principles right, giving the, the ethos of the team the right message at the right time, allowing them to go and play, allowing them to make mistakes. So it is a collective, but, you know, I, I do sometimes kind of look at a lot of the praise that a lot of people get for winning a World Cup and I think well wait a minute you didn't get out there and win that World Cup you know those players won the World Cup and they're the ones that should get all the applause for handling the pressure handling that double loss Sri Lanka and, and Australia to come back to beat India at Edgebaston and then New Zealand in Durham and to hammer the Aussies in the semi-final and then for, to somehow win that World Cup final you know that's not anything but those 11 players that uh, got them over the line so it's the players that deserve all the credit yeah and I, I think a lot of people will concur with you on that but captaincy is important though isn't it Vaughny so you said that look I mean a lot of people uh, were very uh, gave you a lot of credit for your captaincy and rightly so Owen Morgan has also been credited as a good captain many captains in years gone by have been credited can captaincy sometimes bring the best as well as the worst out of a player if not done correctly or if done correctly? Yeah, I mean, I, I can pretty much see straight away within a few months whether a captain is made for captaincy. You can tell pretty much because your form will dip. You will have periods as a captain where your form's not right. It's just the nature of the beast. You have you know, periods of time as a player when your form's not right and, and how you cope with it. But I can see pretty much the captains early in their captaincy reign when they have one or two games without getting the runs or taking the wickets or making a few mistakes, if they change and differ and they get agitated early and they start, you know, making things up or making up excuses, you can tell quite early that they've not got that leadership inside them that's just natural because a run of poor form as a captain, yeah, it's, it's disappointing because you want to help the team, but it shouldn't deflect from what you're trying to achieve as that leader you know as long as you've got the process of exactly where you're trying to take the team and that process is clear in your mind of the team that you need the team ethics that you require the disciplines require the kind of individuals you need in that team that's your role as a captain to try and gel that together and if you form dips just to start with or you know for a few games that's irrelevant to me because it is two aspects of the job. The, the job of captaincy is such a big role of captaining the team, managing the team, leading the team, being the strategist out in the middle, being ahead of the opposition, having a real clear vision of what it's about in the short term, the medium term and the long term. And that long term vision is, is important, what you're trying to achieve. So for Joe Root at the minute, what they're trying to achieve, they're trying to win in Australia in a year and a half time. And I can, for the first time, you know, I, I didn't see this up until the Ashes in 19. I, I thought England just picked test teams. At times, it, it felt like they were picking it out of a hat. You know, there was no clear vision. There was no process. There was no strategy to the team. You know, a solid top three in, you know, what I described, test match style batting, where you almost have three opening batsmen. Joe Root stays at four. Ben Stokes is your firecracker at five. Then you have a batsman at six. They've gone with Ollie Pope. And now they've got the keeper at seven, Joss Butler or Ben Folks. And then you have your bowlers make up for that week. That's test match cricket for me. And over the last four years in test match cricket for England, if you go through some of their formulas and mechanisms of selection, it's just been, it's been mishap. 
And finally, last year, I think it was in the Ashes, that when the Sun went, wait a minute, we've got to change change the way we play with the bat. We've got to be a bit more respectful to quality bowling. We can't attack all the time. But a long period of time in that first innings, you've got to be looking to get 400 in the first innings. And the pennies dropped, and, and you saw the results in South Africa. The difficulty now for Joe Root is the momentum's kind of been lost because they needed to play those two games in Sri Lanka. I can't see how they play the West Indies here in June. So you start looking at that Ashes in a year and a half time and it might be that they only get about 12 months in preparation for that next Ashes series because we might miss a lot of the summer this year. And that's going to be difficult. But for what they did in South Africa, I'm finally starting to see the process in place to win long term. And that's, for me, what leadership's about. The medium term, obviously, is to try to win those series as you're taking part. The, long, the short term is to win that game or break it down even further just from, to win that session. And then you win the next session. That, that's the short term. But that long-term vision for me now is clear from all, all of us watching England cricket is that they've got a, a certain plan in the way they want to play and also the style of cricketer that they need, i.e. fast bowling, so Mark Wood, Joffrey Archer are so important. Ollie Stone waiting in the background, so important. The fact that the A-side, the Lions, went to Australia, beat their A-team in a test match at the MCG just a few months ago. Again, I can see a clear plan. Cricket has got their, their kind of eyes on the ball of making sure that they go to Australia with a, a more successful chance or a better chance than they have done the last two times when they've lost 4-0, 5-0. Uh, so that's leadership. And if Joe Root has three or four games where he's not scoring runs, all right, he's got to sort that out in his own head and with his coaches. But don't let it derail the fact that what he's finally doing with the captaincy, to me, looks like it's going in the right direction. And that's where I can see early in people's captaincy reigns Who's got a clear vision? You look at something like Brendan McCullum in New Zealand. You could clearly see what Brendan was trying to set out to do. Yes. And every time he went out into the middle, you knew who the leader was and what he was. He was an attacking captain. He always attacked, particularly in white ball cricket. He changed the face of the 50-over game with his an attacking approach of getting wickets, setting aggressive fields to get wickets. You know, many have followed suit. Owen Morgan, you know, after the 2015 World Cup, you know, he'll be the first to admit he, he was... You know, on tender hooks, would he keep his job? While Andrew Strauss kept him in his job, and then they had a clear vision of what the team needed to do to get the 2019. That, for me, is leadership, and that's pretty much what an England captain or an Australian captain. You look at the the documentary about the Australians, the Test. You can clearly see that when Justin Langer took over and Tim Payne, they had a clear vision of how they were going to try and beat England in England in the Ashes. All right, they didn't win, but they got the Ashes back home with a two-two draw. And that one comment should, it should be up on the walls of many leadership conferences. What Tim Payne said to his team after they got beat at Henley, the Ben Stokes, magnificent uh, uh, hundred. How he got them over the line, I'll never know. Tim Payne in the dressing room, I don't know how long afterwards, but it looked pretty soon afterwards. He just sat the team down. They were absolutely destroyed. He just said, remember, if we stick to the processes, we will beat this England side over the course of the next two weeks. And that was proven to be the case. That, for me, is leadership. Just clarifying everything in the pressure moment when things haven't got right. Just reminding the players what they've been doing for a period. That three-hour period that's just happened at Henley, you have to wipe that. That shouldn't happen, but it did. And he put it right straight away. Just reminding the players, process. You deal with the process, you've got a great chance of walking. 
That's absolutely amazing, Michael. And have you, in your career, did you ever have a similar experience to the Aussies in the sense that you thought that you had a game of cricket won and then suddenly somebody did something so special to actually then, you know, snatch victory from the jaws of defeat? And have you then had to sit players down or were you sat down as, as a young player and said, right, what happened here was incredibly disappointing. We now need to put that behind us, however, and move on because we can still be competitive. Did you ever experience that? No, I mean, yeah, we lost some big games. I remember losing a one-day game at Lords when NASA was captain and Yurad Singh got them over the line. They chased 325. And there were, I think, five or six down. And those KL, I think it was, uh, got a hundred as well or an 80-odd not out. Yeah, and, Mohammed and Kaif, I think was his name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mohammed Kaif. And, 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 and that was the first time, really, that, um, you know, we won a game that we should really have won easy. You know, won easy and we lost. But the lessons that I learned from that is we actually didn't have that moment of sitting down and going, wait a minute. It was just all disappointment in the dressing room. You know, sometimes you've got to spin it around as a positive and, and kind of just say to players, look, these are where we could have done better. This is what we could have done if we had our time again differently. But just remember, we pushed an Indian side all the way in the final and should have got over the line and we didn't. You know, but in terms of, of test match cricket, yeah, I don't remember that many games. I mean, my last test match actually was probably the one where Graham Smith produced an incredible innings at Edgebaston to chase down a target. I can't remember what it was. It must have been 250, 270. Yeah. Yeah. We had him at LBW a few times, by the way, but no DRS in those days. And he got him over the line. I guess that was, you know, that was my moment of disappointment fully because I knew my time was coming to an end and I just wanted to drag it out till the last test at the Oval where, you know, it would have been all to play for with one to play. And, and, and I was going to go whatever happened at the Oval. I'd made my mind up that, you know, this was going to be my last series. I told my wife before the series that it was uh, the time to move on. But once I'd lost the series, I thought, well, I'm going. I might as well go now. I don't want to hang around and just be at the Oval for a farewell. I didn't feel that was the right thing to do. So I guess that Smithy innings, uh, he, he has a habit, Smithy, of seeing off England caps. I mean, that's two or three of us that he got rid of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, and I remember that incredibly emotional uh, press conference you gave, uh, which I think really moved a lot of people. You know, you'd, you'd achieved so much, Michael, honestly, as, as a player and as a captain as well. At the end, when you, when you decided, look, I'm, I'm going to be calling it quits, but you still managed to bring a little bit of humor into it when you said, uh, my little boy Archie, who was very young at the time, managed to bowl one that uh, kept a bit low in the garden and uh, took my off stump out of the ground. And you made it sound so humorous, but, I, I would imagine yeah. <laughs> the emotions that were coursing through you would have been incredible. It, it must have been a very, oh, oh was it a, a difficult decision to make? Or had you just known, you know what, I've done what I've needed to do, time to move on now? No, I, I, I knew it was the right call. I knew I had to move on. There was a lot of change around being a cricket team around that time. And, you know, it was the right thing for me to move aside. But, <clears throat> you know, it's still the most difficult decision that I've ever made because, I'd love to still be the England captain now. It's the best position in sport, in, in my eyes, that you're the captain of the England cricket team. It's, you know, the honour of the game. I absolutely adored captaincy more than actually batting in the end. I absolutely love going out there, being a tactician, trying to manoeuvre the team, manage the team. That, for me, is what, you know, gave me great joy getting out of bed. So I always remember um, the press card. I wrote a script about what I was going to say. Mm -hmm. 
and it was all written down and then Gus Fraser came and saw me just before I was um, about to go onto the podium and it was at Loughborough at the academy at the university there and, and he, he, I think he said something and he hooked me and I kind of just went, you know what, well, I've never had a script in my life, never ever and I still don't, I still, I'm useless at reading from scripts, I like to just have it in my mind and go for it so I just ripped my scripts up and I just went upstairs and spoke and obviously the emotions came out. I think, you know, I'd be disappointed. I'm not saying that everyone should show a tear, but, you know, I'd be disappointed if privately, if, if you do decide to stand down from captain in your country, you don't shed a tear or two because, you know, that's the best time of your life when you're, you're captain in your country and you, you've got the great honour of doing so. So when it does end, you know, and you never... And I, I, I knew also that I was never going to play for England again. There was no way... You know, with the way my knee was, my body wasn't treating, you know, the two years leading into that decision, probably from 2005, you know, no one really knew how many injections I was having in my knee. You know, I was in a bad state. So I knew in my heart of hearts that I wasn't going to play for England again. So the emotion was not just about, you know, the captaincy being game enough. It was, it was about the fact that I realized that it was going to be the, you know, I guess this moment now was going to be the last time that I really addressed the media and, spoke on behalf of the team uh, and, and not just that spoke on behalf of being an England player because I knew that I would never play again The first time I came across you was actually an England A tour when you came to Zimbabwe in 1999 I'm, I'm sure you remember that um, Yeah And I although obviously not being able to see at all but the funny thing is I still know when a player is going to deliver. I don't know how I do it. I guess it's just one of those talents I've been blessed with. And, and I remember saying to my late brother, this guy, Michael Vaughan, is going to go a long way. It was a, it was a frustrating tour for you because there was so much rain about that. A lot of the games here in Zimbabwe were, were rained out, I remember. But whenever yeah. I did see you play, I'm going to use the word see because it, may, it doesn't make sense to say when I heard you play. So when I saw you play, I, I knew that you were, you were destined for, for good things. And of course, it happened in 1999. You made your tour against an incredibly aggressive uh, South African bowling attack at the Wanderers. And, and I know that making your way out from the dressing room to the, the middle of the, the, the field, you had to deal with those crowds banging on those boards and one incredible racket that you had to deal with and a rampant Alan Donald. But did you ever envisage that you you would then be taking over the captaincy from Nasser Hussein in 2003 and lead England to an Ashes win, which I'm sure is every single England Test captain's dream, is to lead England to an Ashes win. Did you ever imagine all of that happening? Did you ever have dreams of captaining the England team, let alone playing for them? No, I mean, I, I honestly didn't. Um, my goal as a kid was to play for Yorkshire and I managed to do that as an 18-year-old and and I, I never really, I mean, I captained England in the 19s, under 17s, but captaincy was never anything that I really aspired to do. You know, I didn't see it as something that was that important in my life. I thought I just want to be a player. You know, I guess over the years, I, I just continued to be a player, got a little bit better, managed to get that captaincy of the A Tour in 98 or 99, whatever it was. And, uh, did okay. Uh, we won the series in South Africa. A lot of good reports came back about the style of leader that I was and the style of captain I was. And, you know, all the talk was Triscothic was going to get the job after Nasser Hussein. And, right. you know, I think I'd have been quietly happy with that. But, you know, for whatever reason, they, they gave me the nod. I got the job in one day cricket, did okay. 
and then obviously got the job when Nasseri signed at the the end of that first test against South Africa. But you know, I, I always get asked the question, you know, what books did you read or you know, who was your kind of captaincy mentors? I didn't have one. I didn't have any. Really? I didn't read a book. I was just me. My dad's um my dad's a, a very, very good leader in in terms of leading business teams and he, he leads sales teams and he, he deals with I, I call a lot of what I would describe as very similar types of people to sports people, just run of the mill, down to earth, you know, normal people, like normal things, do normal things, but have emotions. And the best piece of advice I ever got was from my dad. And he just ran me up and he said, look, just remember when you're a cricket captain, you're dealing with people. And the only advice I'm going to give you is don't manage the player, manage the person. And if you manage the person, the player will arrive. If you don't manage the person, that player might not be able to flourish from the talents that he has. So it was the best piece of advice I ever got that, you know, I, I always tried to manage the person. I knew the player. I knew what he did in terms of skill. I could see the averages. I didn't look a great deal into that, but I could see what the player was. I just needed to know the person. So I, I spent a lot of my time actually trying to understand who the people were and, and trying to mould the people together and making sure that I knew what motivated them, uh, what made them tick. Uh, if, if there was ever, ever times that I could you know, give them time out of the game just to give them a breather or a day off from training. I, you know, I, I, that didn't overly concern me, that kind of stuff. Uh, I just wanted players to be there on the Thursday. You know, I wanted them mentally right on the Thursday. And that, you know, I'd been a player for four years and I knew the strains and stresses of an international sports person. You know, it can get you. You know, it, it can really affect you and you can start to be negative a lot of the time because you're fearing failure. You can fear your place in the side. You can fear what people are going to say. You can fear you know, the fact that you're not going to achieve what you want to achieve as an individual. So I knew that. So I would always spend a lot of time with the players trying to, you know, making sure that on that Thursday morning they were arriving, prepared, ready to go. And I would always call it ready to enjoy the game. Because I believe if you've done the preparation and you put the right things in place as an individual and we've collectively spoken what we're about as a team, you can actually enjoy playing the game. You know, that's the message I always give any players now is that get yourself in a position that you can enjoy the game. You can only do that if you, you tick every box. And that was my style. My style as, as a captain was that. And it, it didn't mean that every player had to train as hard as every other. You know, it was down to you as an individual to know what you needed. So I tried to give the onus to the player to prepare, get themselves right. I trusted them. I wanted to trust them. And, you know, on the Thursday when we arrived for the test start, it was like, right, everything is done. Enjoy the game. Let's go for it. You spoke earlier on about England having a very clear plan about trying to win the Ashes in Australia. Did you have that a similar plan when you took over from Nasser Hussain as captain in 2003, where you also more or less had a year and a half to work with, didn't you, in, in terms of the 2005 Ashes series? Admittedly, you played a lot more cricket. One series that springs to mind was the success that you had in South Africa at the end of 2004 going into 2005. Did you also have that plan that you are observing now as captain to ensure that, you know what, we have not won this Ashes since 1986-87, I'm telling you now, we're going to do the best we can to get it back this time round in 2005. Yeah, um, it was quite clear. I'd been to Australia in 2002-03 as a player and we'd lost 4-1 and, you know, the Aussies were such a good team and they had a, they had a mentality of 
such dominance and strength that they could belittle and shrink players within the opposition. And they did that with some of the players in 2002-03. And it's not that they weren't quality players, they were, but that Australian team had it in them. And particularly a lot of the senior players that had been beaten by them in the 90s, the early 2000s, you know, they had too much baggage. They had too much negative mentality. And again, understandably, when you've been done by Warner McGrath on a few occasions, it can get to you. Mm. Gillespie, then Ponting, then Hayden, then Langer, Steve Waugh, Damian Martin, Gilchrist. You know, these guys just had the skill, the ability and the mentality to completely bamboozle an opposing team. And once that's happened over two and three and four series, you know, my mindset straight away in 2003 with Duncan Fletcher was to make sure that when we arrived in 2005, unfortunately, no, we didn't announce it at the time, but we didn't want many of the senior players in the team because I just knew from my experience of playing in 2-2-2-3 that, you know, their brains had become a little bit frazzled with the Aussies. And I'm sure they'd be the first to admit that. So our approach was over that two-year period to make sure that, you know, when we get to 2005, there wasn't going to be many of those senior pros. You know, and if you think about the last decision that we had to make, and it was because his back was was bad as well. He just played his 100th game against Bangladesh. Graham Thorpe, um, he didn't play in that first test at Lords. Kevin Peterson, Ian Bell, you can decide whichever you want of, of the last pick, but those two needed to play. Graham Thorpe missed out. He'd had an injection in back in his back, and, and for one, you need fit players to play against the Australian team. You can't have anyone that's struggling with an injury. So we needed a, a fit eleven, and we decided to go without Graham Thorpe. It, it given us the indication that he wasn't quite right, so he kind of made our our decision a little bit easier. But you know that was the process over two years. NASA retired in two oh four. Stewie retired at the, the end of that series in two thousand and three. Goffey played the first test I captained at Lords in three, didn't play again. Andrew Caddick never played. Uh, Mark Butcher didn't come back in. Crawley didn't come back in. There was a number of players that, you know, Mark Rambakash was talked about, but, you know, I was a big fan of Rams in terms of, you know, his skill and his technique, and he'd done pretty well against Australia. But, again, I just couldn't risk, and, and neither could Duncan risk the, the chance of a, a senior pro coming into the dressing room. And, you know, you lose the first game, and we did. You know, if we'd have had three or four of the senior pros that have been there, done it, and, and been in that situation before, it's hard for me as a captain to say that it doesn't matter. You know, we'll come back from this. You know, and it's almost the part of the leadership role is conning the team, conning the team into believing things aren't as bad as they seem, particularly when you lose. And by having a young set of players in 2005, we'd never really lost against Australia. You know, we'd beat them in a, in a Champions Trophy semi-final. A lot of the players that played in 2004 in the Champions Trophy that beat Australia were picked in that kind of team because of the Ashes. We weren't even thinking about winning a one-day tournament, but we beat them. So a lot of the players that actually had some decent success, a lot of the players that played in the one-day series prior to 05, we'd won them at a few games against the Australian side. So we kind of knew how to beat them. So that first test was important that, all right, we lost, but we had a a mentality in the dressing room that I could say, look, we'll come to West Baston in a week's time and we'll just go again. We'll go harder. And and remember, we've just been South Africa. The one thing that we won't do at West Baston is be scared. There was a time at Lords I felt we were scared with the bat in our hand. Uh, And that wasn't the team that we'd kind of built up over a year or so. And, Arrived at Edge Baston, played more aggressively, got a bit of fortune with the toss decision, Glenn McGrath falling on the ball. But 
you know, it was more the mentality arrived back from the, the England side that had played in South Africa, won seven test matches in 2004 in the English summer. And it was back on the train, back going forward. And, you know, once you get Freddie Flint off in form, Peterson in confident mood, he just started his test career with a bang. And then you've got your bowlers, Simon Jones, Hoggard, Harmison, with a you know a real strong help in Andy and Ashley Giles. We knew that we had the possibility of doing something special because just from winning that one game in, in Birmingham, the whole belief and the whole kind of momentum in our dressing room changed because we realised that we could actually beat Australia. Mm, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you, you've just mentioned a couple of players there, big-name players, such as Graham Thorpe, who obviously was an incredibly good player, making his debut in 1993, and, you know, with that 114 that he scored against Australia on debut and doing some incredibly good things in the middle order for a number of years. But you, as a captain, had a lot on your mind, didn't you, Vaughny? Because, I mean, leading up to that first Test match at Lords, and as much as you may have tried to have escaped the media hype, it was always going to get to you at some point, you know, where people would be discussing and saying who's going to play is it going to be the more experienced graham thorpe who will grind you into the ground and score a hundred or maybe a 200 over a day and a half will it be kevin kevin peterson who is uh, a little bit volatile but who's quite capable of taking the game away from the opposition in a day if he were to spend a day at the crease you know then ian bell as well. So you, you had a lot to, to try and, and work with you and Duncan Fletcher, and yet you made it work so beautifully by taking that risk and saying, right, although Graham Thorpe probably would like to play, he said he's not 100%. We are now going to take this on the chin if it goes wrong, and we're going to make sure that we bring a bit of youth into the side with the experience that we already have in bringing Kevin Peterson in and, and allowing him also to play his natural game. Yeah, I mean, Kevin was always going to play from the moment that he arrived in the one-day team in South Africa. You know, as soon as we saw him doing to South Africa what we saw, you know, me and Duncan just looked at each other and went, he's playing in the test. Yeah. You know, he's, he's playing in the Ashes series. And, you know, we always wanted a younger team. So Ian Bell was one of great promise, played against the West Indies in 204, like the way that he played. So quietly, we, we actually wanted a, a young, fresher team. So it... It was a big decision because you're dealing with a legend. But it wasn't a big decision because the process had been over two years to get to the 05 series with a younger set of players. And, you know, I, I liked the way that the team were playing in the, the one-day game at that time. I thought we were taking the opposition on. I thought we had a nice buzz about us. We managed to draw against the Aussies in the series prior to 05. Kevin Peterson smashed Gillespie to all parts in Bristol. So we'd kind of created a spirit amongst ourselves in the one-day arena that I just wanted to try and take forward into the 05 team. And, you know, these things are, I guess, always looked upon now as, as great decisions at the time. It was a risk because you, you kind of would want a Graham Thorpe. He was one of the, the senior players that, you know, I adore because of his fighting spirit, uh, always worked a method and a way of playing against certain bowlers, had that inner scrap. You need that inner scrap in your own individual body to play against the Australian side. He had that, but it was just a decision that we, we made at the time. And, you know, great, Ian Bell didn't, didn't have a great series, but he contributed. You know, he had a couple of 50s at Old Trafford, took a couple of good catches. He was young. He was a little bit wet behind the ears because he'd not played a lot of international cricket. So it was a massive learning curve for him. And, you know, who's to say that that Ashes 05 series didn't set Ian Bell 
up for the rest of his career because of the confidence and the, you know, just the experience of being involved in that series. And then you go on and play the, the hundred and odd tests that he did and, and, and score so many runs. You know, you need a foundation and maybe that was his, you know, he, he would have liked more runs, of course, as we all would. But I just wonder if that was his foundation for his career at that 2005 series. In a team, there are always very special players, but they also at times do have very big personalities, larger than life uh, characters who can be a bit tricky and volatile to handle. So it's no secret that Kevin Peterson was one of England's finest players, but unfortunately, it's also no secret that he at times could be a bit difficult to handle. H how did you do that, Vaughny? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I knew him. I knew I knew what he was about. I, I didn't mind that he was different. You know, I, I think in teams you want difference. I don't think you want 11 players to be exactly the same. He was a difference, you know, in terms of the way that he played, the way that he looked back in, in those days, he was different. Trained harder, if not the hardest I'd seen anyone. So I like that, you know, the, the fact that he would sweat and go through a, a rigorous routine in preparation. I, I like players that do that. You know, he, he's sensitive, Kevin. I mean, mm. Kevin, as, as much as he puts on this very confident persona and, you know, he's trying to take on the world at the minute, saving rhinos, he's a sensitive soul. You know, he, he likes to be loved. And there's a lot of those kind of characters that, you know, have these personas of being ultra, ultimately so confident in what they do out in the middle, which they are doing. But, you know, you've got to remember the person's not just about being a cricketer out in the middle, hitting the ball and, you know, trying to take on the opposing bowlers. It's only a small part of your life, you know, being a cricketer, you know, and particularly the cricketer that everyone sees you as, as that person. So everyone sees Kev as this flamboyant character, uh, very opinionated. That's fine. No problem with that. That's, that's his role. If, if that's the style of pundit, if you like, or, social media persona that he wants to be, that's absolutely fine. But, you know, he, he's also very sensitive and vulnerable. And, you know, I got like early and, and like anyone, you know, he just needed a little bit of management, a little bit of guidance, a bit of direction, knowing exactly what his role was. I think understanding your roles within the team is very important and the captain should lead that with all the individual players to allow them to, to be who they are. So, you know, I, I always, particularly now I'm commenting when, when he was a player and, and the amount of people that used to absolutely cane him for getting out in the 90s, taking on the shots, mm. you know, being caught on the boundary. And I used to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Mate, that's, that is him. Yeah. You know, that's what I would want as a captain of the team, him to be taking the opposing team on. And if, every now and again, it didn't work. It, it wouldn't even bother me in the slightest. You know, what would bother me if he wasn't taking the opposing team on? And that that was my message to Kev all the time. Just give yourself a sniff and then take him on. Your job is to take the opposing team on because you're the most gifted England cricketer that I'd ever played with that had the ability to take Shane Warne down, Glenn McGrath down, Murrah Litherland down, Pollock down. You know, these great, great bowlers, there's only a small few in any team over a history that can take the best bowlers in the world down and Kevin Peterson can do that. I'm going to make a statement which may possibly get me into a bit of trouble with some of the older uh, England supporters, but it is my opinion, and it may only just have been for the, the 2005 Ashes series, even if it just was for that duration of the series. At that time, when you beat Australia 2-1, 
to win the Ashes. That bowling attack that you had of Matthew Hoggard, Steve Harmison, Simon Jones, uh, Andrew Flintoff and Ashley Giles was the best bowling attack in world cricket, in test cricket going around at the time. Ooh. I think I think they they clicked for a um, a four four game well five game because we got twenty wickets at Lords they clicked I, I I personally I don't think they would put themselves as the best right you know I, I still think the Aussie team and I still think they had the best attack you know that Warren McGrath combination was just incredible you know Pakistan's attack around that time was strong. But for England in, in English conditions, the fact that it was a dry summer and we swung it and reverse swung it, of course, that they were a made threat. One of the one of the keys team was us batting first. We batted first on every occasion from Edgebaston to to the Oval. Four Test matches on the trot, batting first, and you know we couldn't have beaten that Australian team chasing the game because of Shane Warne and because it was such a dry summer and it was going to be spinning. You know, batting first was a big thing for us because we we managed to get runs on the board and then we just could just unleash the four quicks and Ashley Giles just to kind of toil away at one end over the wicket for a straight, get the odd wicket or two. So, you know, I, I do think batting first was a, a big play in that series. Well, okay, then maybe I'll, uh, I'll, I am a little bit prone to exaggeration, but maybe could that be one of England's best bowling attacks then? I mean, I know that in the past there have been some formidable fast bowlers who have come out of England, you know, uh, and, I, and I suggested this to Alan and Mark Butcher in a conversation I had with them a couple of weeks ago. But as a collective unit, everybody seemed to understand their role so well. Matthew Hoggard was very good with the new ball, but he would then make way for Freddie Flinter, who would come on, what, first change, and you'd have Simon Jones, Ashley Giles, who was, in my opinion, quite underrated, as you as you just said. He was very crucial in, in getting cr- key wickets at, at crucial times. So maybe perhaps not the best in world cricket, but I'd like to believe that as a collective unit, that bowling attack that won you or that had a part to play in winning you the Ashes series was was the best bowling attack as a team that England had. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, you know, the, the Jimmy Anderson, Stuart Broad, Graham Swan, that trio was, was outstanding as well. I mean, when you throw in a workhorse like Tim Bresden, I like that attack going yeah. back into the, the days of Fred Truman, you know, be turning in his grave to think that he wasn't involved in one of uh, England's greatest bowling attacks. So I, I'm not one to say whether it was or it wasn't. It was a good attack at the time, uh, good for our conditions. Every one of them gave something different, which is uh, so important as a captain. Obviously, Fred's height, bounce, discipline, reverse swing, Harmison with the bounce, pace. Steep bounce, uh, Simon Jones, Skiddy, reverse swing, and Hoggy, the, the day-to-day English trundler that just uh, was kind of on the spot, swung the ball, could probe away and just bring the batsman forward, perfect for English conditions. And then Ashley Giles, just with his over-the-wicket, yet people say negative. I, I wouldn't say it was negative. I thought it was smart what he, what he delivered. So in, in five of them, you, you had five differences, which is uh, so important for a, a captain. And then sadly, a year later, in 2006, a lot of people were very confident that England would be able to retain the Ashes in Australia. But that was an incredibly disappointing series for you, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, I was obviously on the, the sick bed on, on, on uh, hospital with Wanee. I arrived for the one-day series, but I was never right. 
the Aussies had the bit between the teeth. Same team that we beat in 05 in, in, in the home backyard. Uh, they wanted to see a bit of blood and they got it. You know, we had a few injuries. Freddie had to be the captain. It was difficult for him. I, I get asked a lot about that series. Oh, would it have been different if you'd have been captain? The answer is no. Would we have lost 5 0? Maybe. Maybe not. Four, three. Not too sure. But. <laughs> You know, I wouldn't have made a massive difference in that series because it's about getting 20 wickets and we'd have struggled in Australia with the attack that we had at the time. Two or three of the senior guys had got niggles. One or two of the younger guys just weren't quite ready at that stage to be bowling in Australia, understandably. You know, it, it was just one of those series where Australia, with all those legends, many of them that were going to move over at the end of that series, they wanted to finish on a high. So, yeah, I think a lot's made of that. If you actually think back now, you know, we lost 5 nil in 6-7 against that great, great side. England lost 5 nil in 13-14 and 4 nil in 17-18. Yeah, yeah. You know, against decent Australian teams, but nothing more than decent. They weren't a great, great side that England lost to. It just happens in Australia. If you get on the wrong footing, you know, you can get done. And England are doing the right things in preparation for the next time. But again, if you're not careful in Australia and things don't go your way and you don't get your mentality right, you don't get your players in form... For one thing, you can't arrive in Australia with, with half your team fighting for, for form or fighting for their place in the side because you get eaten alive. You've got to have a consistent team. As England had in 2010-11, uh, they had a mature team, knew their roles, played an Aussie team that was you know, a good team to be getting at that time and they played a, a tremendous series to beat them. So, you know, I, I don't really look at 2-6-7 of anything out of the norm for the team that England were playing and the fact that twice since that time, you know, we've lost 5-0, 4-0. As I said, England could do everything. If you don't get off to the start, Brisbane's a massive, massive game for England in a year and a half time because if you lose that first one, history tells you that not many teams come back from going 1-0 down. The teams that have success in Australia somehow get something out of that first test that England did in 10-11. They drew that first test match in Brisbane. Well, I think that's a, a nice way to end proceedings, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure. We certainly, I'm sure, all the England uh, supporters and fans will be hoping that that they will find a way that this vision that they have will will come together, and that they will be able to win the Ashes in Australia when they are there next year. I certainly, I think Ashes Ashes cricket is one of the best Test series you could ever think of, or ever ever you know really appreciate watching. Thank you very much, Michael Vaughan, for your time, and and I. Th- I think personally all I can say is the fact that you that you captained England in 51 test matches and won 26 as captain I'd like to believe as you said in your very emotional press conference when you decided to call it quits you know courtesy of what your dad said to you you have a lot to be proud of and and I think as cricket lovers around the world we appreciate what you bought to captaincy from 2003 up until 2008 thank you very much for your time Michael All the best. You've been listening to Dean at Stumps, Zimbabwe's only weekly cricket podcast. 